The Solid 7 Podcast is fueled by Jocko Go. Engineered for anyone who wants to get after it in life, pre-meeting, pre-testing, pre-negotiation, or pre-mission. If you're looking for an extra cognitive or physical edge, Jocko Go is your force multiplier. With 95 milligrams of caffeine and zero sugar, the keto-friendly Jocko Go will give you a physical and cognitive boost without the crash that you experience with average energy drinks. Visit JockoFuel.com today, and you can use our promo code SOLID7, that's S-O-L-I-D-7, to get 10% off your order. Get on the path and get after it. Oh, and because lawyers exist, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and this product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, hello, world, and welcome back to a Solid 7 podcast, a better than average podcast, if I do say so myself. I'm your host, Kale, and each week I invite a guest to join me here on the podcast and talk about whatever is going on in the world that interests us. And this week, uh, I'm excited to introduce you to a long overdue uh, guest, my good friend, doctor, and we're not talking PhD, doctor, like a real doctor, not like... I mean, God bless her, not like our first lady, an actual medical doctor, Dr. Ryan Banting. Welcome to the podcast. You you couldn't go 30 seconds without picking a fight. Um, <laughs> I, I absolutely I, want – I know you told me to come in naturally. I really wanted to come in with the cheesiest radio guy voice of all time that I could think of, and I was just drawing a blank. So we'll just be normal people then, I guess. I You know, I – I wasn't trying to pick a fight. I was just making, I wanted people to understand you're not like a professor. You're not like a PhD doctor. You're like, a, is there a doctor yeah. on this plane, doctor? I, I actually am reasonably good at that sort of stuff. Yeah, I'm the guy you show your rashes to. You tell me it burns when you pee. Yeah, I'm, I'm that guy. Yeah. Now, is it is it accurate to say, or is this TV and movie talk board certified? Are you a board certified doctor? I am a board-certified physician in the United States. Yes, absolutely. A, you say physician because you want to make – A, you a okay, so I couldn't start without picking a fight. You can't start with going for the fancy doctor words. Like you can't say uh, Tylenol or, you know, you got to say acetaminophen. Uh, what is it? Oh, yeah. You? No, I say physician because I think there are too many people who um, are a little imprecise with the, 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 the word doctor, and a lot of people use it for a lot of things. But pretty much everyone knows what a physician is. Yeah. So it, it's to me, it's a little less less likely to be confused. Now, I, I didn't realize this until you went went through this process. You and I have been we've been friends for a, a minute, as the mm -hmm. kids say. And uh, as you went through this process, I, I I learned you know it's not not every doctor is an MD. And I'm not talking, again. We've set aside the PhD thing. You are yeah. a, a DO. A DO, yes. A DO. And so uh, so you would be like Ryan Banting, comma DO. It wouldn't be like comma MD, which I feel yeah. like makes it harder to name, uh, you know, like a television series after you. Uh, so there's a challenge yeah, there. There, but there are none. Everybody's MD. Dr. What, Quinn, she was I'm, MD. I'm curious as a DO, are the real doctors nice to you or do they talk down to you? <laughs> the real doctors? Oh, I knew you were going to do something like that. Um, oh, I have I have to. I, it's funny. Whenever someone asks me the difference, I usually say that um, the difference between the two is that I had a lower GPA in undergrad, and therefore my punishment for that is having to explain what the difference is for the rest of my life. <laughs> that's uh, the way I that's describe fair. it. 
Well, Doc, here on the Solid 7 Podcast, we are, of course, as always, fueled by Jocko Go. Now, tonight, not for lack of trying. Uh, no, we'll I only... tried. Jocko, yeah. I want you to understand, I really tried. Kale tried to get me to go get one. I looked around at your website. I tried to find stores. Apparently, mm-hmm. Fayetteville, Arkansas does not, isn't really good at keeping it in stock, but I, I tried. Yeah, you, unfortunately, you're in a Jocko Go desert. And uh, so the internet is your only recourse, but unfortunately our our scheduling for this uh, went down in such a way that uh, you didn't have time to, to get anything shipped in. So I will consume enough Jocko go for, for the both of us. Um, I'm I'm going with a watermelon. I will admit I was kind of looking forward to the citrus flavor. I was going to get that one, but that is not my thing, but the citrus sounded good. Citrus is the only new improved flavor I have yet to find and consume, so I am looking forward to trying that. So tonight, instead, I'm having uh, a watermelon now. If listeners um, listen to the episode uh, with Brian Littlefield from, from Jocko Fuel, or if you go back and listen to that, you'll know that I've, I gave Brian, uh, you know, a hard time about the watermelon flavor. It, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't up to par. Uh, I'm not going to pull any punches. This new improved watermelon is on point. They came through. It's good stuff. So cheers. It's about everybody. time you got them in line, Kale. Now I regularly Somebody needs uh, to do it. I regularly <laughs> tell the listeners that uh that not only is Jocko Go not bad for you as, as an energy drink, but it is literally good for you. It's literally health food. As a doctor, am I lying? I haven't gone through the ingredients. I, oh, I don't know. Listen, listen. We're not going to do all this hedging garbage, okay? The people want real answers. No, we probably do need to say something ridiculous. Like, you are oh, a- yeah, Okay, so the, full yeah. disclaimer. Anything yes. I say today is not medical advice. Talk to your own doctor. Nothing I say here qualifies as establishing a doctor-patient relationship. Nothing I say is anything but my own rambling opinions. It does not reflect on any of my employers or the Department of Defense, or the military, or the U.S. Army, or any of my commands. So there you go. That's my disclaimers. Uh, Your doctor disclaimer has a little extra on it, because when you're not busy being a doctor, well, I guess at all times you're busy being a doctor, but you also do some of your doctoring for the U.S. military. Yeah, yeah, Army National Guard. Yeah, you're, uh, what are you, a captain now? I am a captain now, which... uh, for the record, in the in the medical side of the officer universe, uh, means I basically graduated med school. No one is impressed with a captain doctor. Uh, you don't have to earn it in the way that that like an infantry captain has to earn it. Uh, I just show up, right? Uh, and I'm a captain, so there is constructive credit for people who have certain educational uh, status, lawyers, stuff like that, where we come in at higher ranks. Yeah, if you really want uh, like a, a good like high level breakdown of how that works with doctors in the military, um, I found this phenomenal uh, resource. It's actually a streaming a documentary. It's called Mash. I don't know if you've heard of it, but if you really want to know what doctoring in the military is like, Mash is it's it's on point. Um, yeah, pretty pretty much exact. Exactly. Uh, in many ways, like Scrubs, it doesn't get credit for being the almost most accurate of real civilian residency life. MASH is a lot like <laughs> a lot like military medicine. Fantastic. So, uh, you know, it's so a you should have been on the show a long time ago. But, uh, you know, doctors are busy and uh, you, you've busy. had a- You've had a busy few years. Um, yeah, I think I think it's safe for us to talk about you. You went this career path uh, abnormally. La- I would say abnormally late in life. Yeah, I was probably 
don't know, there was 150 some people in my med school class and I was probably top five oldest, I think. Um, no, you know, you're saying top five. Were you the oldest? Five. No, I was not the oldest. No. Dang, Gina. No, I had a classmate turn 50 in med school. I'm shocked. Yeah. Look at that. That's, I was, a, that's a little more rare, but it happens. I had a joke all lined up about like you having no, no competition for the superlative of like class grandpa or something. And yet, no, no, I, I was certainly um, closer to class dad than, than coolest guy in the class. That's yeah. fair. So I, I've had, I have all kinds of interesting stories over, you know, a, a long-term friendship of ways that I illustrate for people, uh, the, the many ways in which I've figured out that you're the smartest person I know and just deciding you were sick of normal people work and you were going to go be a doctor was probably the biggest flex of them all. I, it pretty much negated all of my <laughs> other stories. Just, a, I, I don't like this anymore. I'll go be a doctor. <laughs> That's not far <laughs> off. Looking from back, it was, it was kind of an arrogant move. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty ballsy, but, um, yeah. I will say, so there's no confusion I am not the smartest person I know uh, because I got there and any, any uh, clinging to the notion that I might have been the smartest guy in the room got, got taken away from me pretty quick. I was below average in med school. Man, those, some of those jokers are just not even human. How would, you, how would you describe, like, if you had to group the ones that outperformed you, what were the commonalities? I'm just kidding, dude. I'm trying to just, I'm baiting gen, you. Don't just uh, genetically better at all things than me. I mean, we, we, I had classmates, okay, I had classmates who, could, who could, you know, almost play games, like, si you know, slightly distracted while the professor was talking, you know, maybe read through some slides, might study two or three hours, you know, uh, you know in, an, in an afternoon or something like that. And then would just go like hang out and, and party and have social lives all afternoon and, and every weekend and would still have upper 90s on all their tests. Just just flat out better at everything than the rest of us. Um, I don't understand. Yeah. It. Well, the age old joke is, you know, what you call uh, someone who gets all C's in med school. Oh, you call them doctor. Is, <laughs> is doctor. And thank God for that. Right. Yeah. So. Call them doctor. And I know that because people call me doctor yeah. a lot. <laughs> Yes. So, well, let's, uh, you know, there, it, I, it's funny because I've said like, I, I'm pretty deep into the podcast at this point and you're, you are someone who, if, if people who know me knew I was starting a podcast would assume that you would be on right away and that you would be a regular and your profession, both of your professions have uh, presented some roadblocks to, to that, right? Like, um, yeah, yeah. you know, the, not so much the, for the, the, nail uh, the free and open exchange of ideas shot, uh, you know, um, sans consequence. So it's, it, yeah. Between, between that and the, uh, uh, you know, just the time constraints of, uh, going through med school, going through residency. It's like I said, it's, you've been busy for a while, but I'm, I'm glad, uh, we're making it happen, but it's hard to say it's, uh, the listeners don't know you yet. And so I'm trying to figure out the best way kind of to introduce you to them. Maybe we've already kind of done that. And, and just to illustrate when I illustrate, when I say, um, that, uh, Dr. Banting here is, uh, is one of the smartest people I know, or the smartest person I know, um, I don't know too many legit Renaissance men, but you are one of them. Like you doctor, you could build a house from the ground up. Um, pretty much every trade involved. Uh, you write poetry. You can sing. I know because the only way I got through chorus in high school was standing <laughs> next to you 
because you actually knew the part. So I knew if I just sang what you were singing, I, I could just pitch match to you. I would love uh, the part. And I was too I was, afraid to let Miss Hill down. Yeah. I really liked her. Yeah. No, that's fair. She was a, she was a nice lady. Yeah. Uh, so just into, uh, you know, an, an athlete and uh, into all kinds of things. And that, uh, rare has been the thing that I have seen you fail at. So all that to say, you're the kind of guest where I like to do a traditional solid seven podcast episode with okay. where we just talk stuff, about a breadth, we talk about a breadth of things because you can speak intelligently to a lot of things that said that also feels like a wasted opportunity to have an actual medical professional on the podcast and listen i don't know if you've noticed i don't know if you've been too busy with school and work and you know like kind of soldiering but not really yeah um, like doctors do. but that's not the same there's been there's been some significant medical questions in the news the last few years. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. A, a lot of so, talk about certain things have happened. So, so let's get into some sure, things man, and we'll it. see, you know, if you need to shy away from anything that's going to, this is part of why we've held off on this, right? Because as ridiculous as this is, there are things that were you to say them on this podcast, this, this itty bitty podcast and to get around to the wrong person. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not, there are people coming I, I out say medical not, licenses for disagreements. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say it's things that aren't even controversial, but there's things that, that never were that are now. Right. And so part of the hesitation in doing this was just making sure we don't jam you up. Yeah. Right. Like, you, you know, you don't need issues at your doctor job for being on the solid seven podcast. So if we start to stray into uh, you know, an area that doesn't work for you, um, you know, we'll, we'll just, I'll just give you, you the, know, whatever. <laughs> we'll, we'll turn, we'll turn the boat around. I'll be like, yeah, you know, um, that watermelon so Jocko sounds great. <laughs> so let's, let's start with um, the most Florida of all questions is COVID real doc. Uh, so here's, here's the funny part about the COVID thing. I have heard everything from, um, and, and people who I think were being, legitimately serious at the time. I, I think the opinion I'm about to say on either side was ridiculous, but I think there were people who legitimately felt this. Uh, one, on one side, uh, COVID is literally going to kill all of us. It is the proverbial comet coming down and exploding the planet. We're all dead, right? I, I, I know people who literally yeah. thought COVID was going to end society and we were all going to, we were all just going to, you know, die in the woods somewhere. And then... I know a number of people who, who legitimately thought that the entire thing was faked. The virus wasn't even real. There was no one in the hospitals. None of them were overcrowded. Um, and, and I, at the time that COVID came out, I was a resident in a hospital that housed quite a number of COVID people. Um, my service uh, helped supervise the, the COVID pregnant patients because internal medicine physicians, while they tend to do more like ICU level care than family medicine physicians, uh, they don't do a lot of pregnant people stuff. So we helped supervise the, the, the pregnant mothers on the floors. And, um, you know, uh, COVID was pretty stinking real to me. Uh, but I, I, I no point really thought like, well, it was going to murder all of us, but it was certainly a big yeah. deal. And I think the trouble was that everyone got uh, so in their feelings. And I think that fear as well as uh you know the the political governmental side of things you know whatever side you agreed on more pressure or less pressure 
everybody everybody got real real uptight and real intolerant of somebody else maybe having a different take on exactly what to do next or maybe exactly how serious it all was and people were coming after each other uh, in ways that i didn't really anticipate well the the problem was right even to say like it, it makes sense there there's there's logic in um okay we're we are facing a, a novel virus uh, we're facing a virus or certainly a version of a virus that we haven't seen before yeah. in the wild and it it makes logical sense to say okay what do we do with this we follow the science and even that those three words that i just spoke follow the science now that is a that is now a politically charged statement oh, yeah. and and that's real problematic in a scenario thank god this wasn't a more serious disease yeah if if we had stayed with the severity of the first couple strains um and, and god forbid if one of them had gotten worse or more contagious or something like that um and if there hadn't have been um, such decent response to uh, kind of vaccine uh, mortality protection and and kind of natural immunity as well. If we hadn't had those things kind of improving the situation, um, holy cow, I mean, it, it could have been a really, really big deal because I remember sitting in rooms talking to very high-ranking physicians in a hospital saying, okay, so so what are we going to do if we're just out of vents, right? Do we start going to a most likely to come off the vent and live at some point? Do we go to first person to get to it, gets it? Do we start saying, hey, you got a week to get off the vent and if you don't make it, we gotta move on to the next one to give them a shot? Like what, what do we do if there's a line of 10 people who are dead today if they're not on a vent and there's no vents left? Like there were, there were, yeah. there were physicians trying to figure out what do we do uh, because there wasn't enough stuff and that's well, that's and a pretty even, crazy thing that yeah. in America we don't tend to think about. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the vents because I, I'd I'd uh, I'd like to know if the reporting was was correct on this. Um, and there's kind of a you know whatever there's a, there's a point to this questioning, but at, at one point so early on it was like the vents became the standard of care and we're scrambling and we're doing what Americans do. What 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 manufacturing we have left? There's manufacturers. There's plants pivoting to build these things that normally make cars and microwaves and whatever else. So yeah, I even it was saw cool stories of like random of... guys who had 3d printers, like when some hospitals were out of parts, like just printing parts and just driving them down to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So it's totally that, you know, it's that world war two ethic of, Oh, you want to screw with America? We're going to build more tanks and planes and vehicles than you can even imagine uh, in the shortest period of time uh, possible. So there, there were, but I, I saw, I feel like there, there became a point where we, where we realized, Oh, um, the vents do more harm than good. That really shouldn't be the standard of care. Was that false reporting, um, or was that really kind of just us learning as we go? It, I would say the I would say the the context is incomplete. So for a while, it was like, hey, as soon as you need that, as soon as you get to X number of need, you should just be on a vet. And that proved to maybe not be the best move because the thought process was the longer we could avoid uh, putting people on a vent maybe that the higher chance they have to come off of it if we if we delay yeah. it as long as possible to a later set point right um but if you are decompensating from a respiratory basis and you're stopping to breathe there does come a point where regardless of whether you think the vent 
was a great idea from the beginning or not, you are now at a point where you're dead in the next 10 minutes if we don't put you on a bed. Like that, that point yeah. shows up for people who are decompensating. And so, you know, I, at a certain I, point, you do need some vents. But if you change the yeah. threshold for when you put someone on it, um, you know, you can you can alter how many people in a building qualify for vents. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and I, I ask about that that in particular. I, I mean, you 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 know, you kind of teed it up, but it's just to me like rehashing COVID in the last years isn't the isn't the particularly co interesting conversation right now. We've kind of all heard it and seen it everywhere. Yeah. But what 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 is interesting to me um, was the cultural, the political clash around it that really handicapped our response to it. And I feel you know, like uh, the, an issue like the ventilators is one where it, it was illustrative to me of, of how overly politically charged and needlessly politically charged it became in that as, as doctors and as the scientists backing you up, right? Like you're the on-field players. Okay. But there's, you know, there's lab guys and researchers and the whole shebang, yep. like doing the studies, backing up, doing lab work, you know, trying to feed information to, to you guys and gals, um, you know, mankind and womankind, uh, but uh, to to be able to do what you do. But in, in a situation like that where it's new, like you're going to throw everything at it. You're going to throw the kitchen sink at it. This is what has worked with similar diseases. This is what's worked with, with SARS. This is, you know, all this different stuff. And, okay, we're going to do what we think might work, and we'll pivot as we figure out what is working and what's not yeah. working. So you're treating, you're treating ahead of the science. So you're not being irresponsible, uh, right? But you're doing what you think might work, and as you figure out, oh, this isn't working, we'll pivot away. Yeah, there are many people and, going, oh, hey, this... I wonder if rat poison will fix this, right? You know, so you're picking yeah. things that you think have a viable chance. And I think that the, the more hopeless a disease seems to be, the more terminal it seems to be, or the sicker you are, the the more freedom you generally feel to just try some stuff, right? Um, and I think that the 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 trick there is the line of when you start to say, okay, well, we tried it, and there's been enough data, or we haven't been able to produce enough result to think that this works, and so now we've proven this isn't really a great thing, so we got to stop. And the trouble was, people disagreeing on that line were going after each other's medical license. And, and that to me is, right. is a pretty scary thing. Well, and, and the point that, that, that I was problematic to me is not just that, but the pundit, the pundit class is going, Oh, Oh, see, like they're making it up like the, the pivoting when you figure out something doesn't work was disproving your, your science. That was, that was the take, right? When really it's the alternate yeah. it's no, like that's, uh, you know, Theorize, test it, fail, move on, right? Yep. And I think some of that, um, I think some of that blame goes to the government, though, to, to be fair, because I don't think there was a really good and honest disclosure of, hey, we used to think this. We still think, given the information we had at the time six months ago, this was great advice. We now see that it's not. We're, we're, we're adjusting and we're moving forward because that's the appropriate thing to do. Hey guys, yeah. the vaccine doesn't mean you can't catch COVID. We all thought it would be that, but it turns out not so much. You still totally get it. Still, we think it's pretty good at surviving COVID, so you probably should get the vaccines. But we need to acknowledge up front that we didn't, we didn't, we 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 pretty quickly learned we were wrong about the notion that it would that it would just 
make you completely immune and you would never have to hear the word COVID again. Yeah. That just wasn't the case. So here's the new here's the, the new case as we know it. And we didn't do that real well. The, uh, even if you want to um, make allowances for good intention, the vaccines were grossly oversold. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's a problem to, to this day. Yeah, it is. I, I still, to this day, when, when I go out to someone's car and I, and I, we talked about like, Hey, um, you know, you have COVID. So let's talk about the utility of, you know, the, the current treatments, Paxlovid, uh, which so far I think has pretty reasonable data for higher risk people. Um, but one of the things I have to talk to was like, Hey, your benefit, the potential benefit to you is higher if you were not vaccinated um, or particularly if you're not known to have had COVID, so there's no chance of like a natural immunity or something. Um, but if you've, if you've done all the vaccines and all the boosters and all that sort of stuff, your odds of surviving this strain, if you're a moderately, a moderate risk person are really pretty great. They're, they're pretty good, right? Yeah. Um, you know, they're not, they're not a hundred percent, but they're really good. So the, the potential benefit to you of, of the, the, the COVID treatments that exist right now, like Paxlovid, you know, you can only make Ninety-nine and a half percent survival rate, so much better, right? Or ninety-nine point nine nine. You can only make it so much better. Um, and so, if you're a, a seventy-year-old with lung disease, diabetes, you know, heart problems, and you haven't been vaccinated, man, that Paxlovid stuff might really, really help you, right? But if you're a if you're a twenty-five-year-old with mild blood pressure issues who's uh, been vaccinated and boosted. I mean, there's only so much that it can do for you from a statistical basis. Current NIH guidelines yeah. absolutely still say, offer the Paxlovid, go ahead and take it. Uh, but like the the amount of benefit it can do you is only so good because your odds are already pretty great so far with the strain of, of surviving and doing okay. Now that's survival. Lots so of people have long COVID issues. Yeah. Now I, I f do they? Um, I feel uh, like they do. Uh, at this so point, I, I do. I do think that's the thing because and and I know multiple people multiple patients of mine and, and multiple just like, you know, coworkers and friends who after they got COVID, they're just not quite the same anymore. And it's not, not like, not like I'm trying to say like all of them went from, you know, being, you know, high end college athletes to invalid. But, uh, you know, a lot of folks who used to be able to go out and run five miles at a time who, who now really, they're just not the same and they, they don't have the same juice they used to. And they're still struggling months and months and months later. So there's a lot of folks who have some issues. Now, have we been able to quantify that? Can I find that on a lung function test? Can I find that on a heart stress test? In a lot of cases, absolutely not. But they just don't feel right. So, yeah, I I was being a little tongue in cheek yeah. to to Goja, um, and you know that. I'm, so that's that explanation is, is for the listeners. But at the same time, that we we are still in a place with thing with this thing where. Um, you know, for all of the, the arguments around follow the science and various doctors claiming to be the science and all that fun punditry stuff, there, 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 there are competing studies. There is competing science yeah. still around these things. And it does get very difficult when, uh, when you can't quantify it, right? When it, it, and that's, that's the tough thing. Like long COVID is, is so many things, right? Or has been described as so many things that it's almost any symptom you have of anything can be oh did you have covid oh well now you got long covid yeah yeah it, it's, um, a, so it's a nebulous I, nothing but it, yes. it certainly doesn't feel and, like nothing to the people who are dealing with something but we I, we haven't been able to quantify exactly what it is so yeah is there so here here's things that i would i would be interested in and this is not me disparaging long covid i really do want to see the data on this oh, yeah. i i feel like 
to the pre- and at the level we're seeing it or the pre- with the prevalence there should be something quantifiable at some point and i'm willing to let the science develop on that i also know this though um i also know that uh, mind over matter is a real thing not in a woo woo way but in the fact that like you can do studies and placebos will make people feel better way you can set up a screen and fake a knee surgery on a pa- on a patient and then report feeling better having greater range of motion oh, yeah. having better functionality and you didn't do the knee surgery there are things like that and so to see in a lot of you know studies, there's always the, the placebo arm who thought that they probably got the actual treatment have dramatic improvement yeah it's crazy and so what i wonder the this thing COVID became such an issue of the psyche as much of as the actual pathogen mm-hmm. um you look at there are – wherever you come down on this thing, right or left, COVID was the worst thing ever. COVID didn't exist. Um, I, I think in the in the moderate middle, if there is one, um, I think COVID, a, a real pathogen, really bad deal for a small percentage of the population, not that big a deal for most of the rest of the population. When you're dealing with big enough numbers, small numbers, small percentages become large numbers, um, whatever. But when – when you see people yeah, now, you put seven percent um, of a ho- of a city in a hospital that didn't used to be there. Like it, it changes life in the hospital pretty dramatically, right? Yeah. So, setting aside, um, you know, uh, people who are immunocompromised, people who are receiving cancer treatment, um, people who have comorbidities, there's this subset of the population that is still terrified mm-hmm. to leave their home. They're terrified to go into a, a grocery store they're still wiping down every package that shows up at the door they're still like the, these these people are there and so now that's an extreme of the psychology of this thing we have seen psychological impacts in society at large mm-hmm. issues with depression issues with drug use issues with overdose uh, emotional issues with with our kids certainly um educational impacts with our kids that's that's not me knocking those things but the, the this is quantifiable data. These things yeah. are happening. So you take a bunch of I'd like uh, you take a bunch of isolated, depressed nursing home patients, and you tell them they can't see their family for six months because a virus is killing everyone. Oh yeah. And then, then you're shocked that they yeah. have dramatically uh, huge declines, even the ones who don't get COVID. I, you know, uh, you and I have talked about this. I haven't talked about this on the on the podcast, but my dad passed away in January of 2020. Now, at the time, I already had concerns about COVID because I'm a worst case scenario kind of person, and I can do a little bit of math, and I'm listening to the news and watching the numbers. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is coming here. Um, but so my my dad, prior to passing away, spent, you know, he was in and out of the hospital a few times, spent like a week in ICU prior to that. If that had occurred just a few weeks later, we, we would not have been able, we wouldn't have seen my dad that whole last week of his life before he passed and certainly couldn't have been there when he passed. And that became a, a reality for an unfortunate number of families. So all that to say this, and I don't know how the science works behind this. I don't know how you suss this out, but I think there's, there's probably some portion of people who are suffering long-term symptoms and consequences of having had COVID. And I think there's people who are convinced because they're convinced they are suffering long-term consequences and symptoms from COVID that they are suffering those things. I don't know how you separate the two, but I think both are a reality. If you wanted to say that the, the emotional effects of both the disease and our society's reaction to it, 
are still impacting a lot of people today. I think that's a very accurate statement. Yeah. Um, so I, there, there is an aspect of, of COVID still going on a, uh, I'm in Florida, you're from Florida. Uh, so in a Floridian sense, we both understand COVID's over. I know not in a very real work sense for you, but in, in somewhat of a real sense, almost nationwide at this point, COVID's over in the, in the sense that Americans are just done with it. We're just not playing the game. And we, we've reached the point where it's like, we're going to let the chips fall where they may. Well, and I think, by I think and there large. are a couple of things that have allowed us to get there. One, this particular strain is not nearly as fatal per infection as some of the prior ones, right? It's just not. And we've had tons of time for everyone who wanted to get them to go get a vaccine. Whether you're, whether you're cool with getting them or you're not cool with getting them, everybody's had their chance, right? I remember when there was still limited supply and you weren't allowed to get it unless you were over 65 and there were people calling and begging and trying to find ways to sneak extra doses for someone else. Like, like I remember that. And during those phases when everyone's like, hey, if, if I pass you in a grocery store because you're sneezing and you murder my grandma, we're not, like, we're not friends. That, that affects us. Like you're hurting yes. other people because no one's had a chance. And now everyone's had their chance, and this strain seems to be less dangerous currently, right? Fingers crossed it stays that way. Um, so I do think you're right. On a societal level, society has just said, hey, man, at some point we got to go back to work. And whatever happens, happens. And I think it's easier to say that now that the odds of survival are much higher. But I agree that a lot of the COVID effect was our societal emotional reaction to it, uh, which was somewhat self-preservation, right? But, but it does seem like on an emotional level – most of the country has been like, yeah, man, if, if it gets me, it gets me. I'm going back to work. Yeah. Right? I, I've said right now, and you can chastise me I mean, me I went to a football not. game with 60,000 people last week. So, Well, I, I, I've said this, like, uh, you know, at work, it'll come up where, you know, so, oh, so-and-so's got COVID. They've got to be out five days. they got a mask or whatever. I'm like, my response at this point is always, why did they take a test? I'll tell you right now, un- unless I'm under medically uh, medical treatment, Rather, that's my PCP or I'm at a hospital or an urgent care. And they say, ah, we, we really need to, to run a COVID test to determine the best best course of treatment. Roger that. You're the pro. That's why I'm paying. Oh, that's why my insurance company's paying you the big bucks. Let's run that test. But if my employer doesn't tell me I have to and a doctor doesn't recommend it and I have the sniffles, I'm not taking a freaking COVID test. Why would I? Uh, well, why? The, 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 the doctor argument to that would be you do that so you don't go to work and give COVID to someone who is a higher risk than you and can die. That, that's, that's the doctor's. But, but I, I, I got to admit, as someone who has at least 15 people a day tell me, this probably isn't COVID. I'm not going to do a COVID test here. Um, I, I hear that at least 15 times a day at work, right? So um, I get it. And I think most people's argument is, hey, um, this one isn't putting people in the hospital. I can't afford to miss another week worth of work. I'm, I'm disinterested in that. I'm a low-risk person. I'm unlikely to end up in the hospital. No, no, you're not doing anything that can mess with my week of work. And I know lots of people who do that because, you, you know, your, your boss isn't going to keep paying your rent if you're not at work. Yeah. Now, I, I want to so re-clarify because one thing, one thing that I was looking forward to from this – was that my my feeling was, and I still hope this is the case, that on the backside of COVID, if people don't take anything else away from it, that maybe they're a little more conscientious about going to work sick themselves yeah. or 
or sending their their kid to school sick, mm-hmm. right? Maybe they'll think about the second and third order effects. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about I woke up and I have some post-nasal drip, or I woke up and I have a mildly sore throat. At no point in the history of ever has that caused anybody to go, you know what, I should stay home and rest today. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, w- I'm with you on that. I mean, that's, that's just not a thing. There's further. My, my favorite thing now, which Babylon B posted a joke about, but it's almost not a joke. Babylon B posted, oh, scientists announced uh, this week they found a new strain of COVID. Uh, they've named it the stealth strain uh, because it causes no symptoms. Cool. Uh, my so, new favorite like, strain. When, when, you'll hear, when you'll hear about, and it's normally with, with politicians, and you're, I, I think as a doctor, as a medical pro- profession, you're going to take issue with me here, and that's okay because even as a doctor, you're free to be wrong. Um, <laughs> so you'll, you'll hear about somebody typically famous, whether they're a politician or, or an athlete or whatever, who are in a set of circumstances where they're, they have to submit to a testing protocol. They're, they're getting tested regardless of symptoms yep. presenting themselves. And you'll hear, oh, so-and-so popped positive, but they're, they feel fine and they're not exhibiting any symptoms. Mm-hmm. We, we, we have a, a term, I don't know if it's a medical term, but there's always been a term for that in life, which is you're not sick. Yeah. Yeah. You're not sick. Mm-hmm. What? Nothing would change in your life if you hadn't taken that test. That there was no reason for you to take. And it has been so it was always true that at any given time we've been carrying around pathogens and based on um, your own DNA, based on your your immune system, what you've been exposed to, you might not exhibit any symptoms and you could potentially pass it on to someone for whom it could be very serious. That's always been the case. It but now because this is so politically charged, we're going to act different and treat this different. Oh, yeah. To me, so I, I, one of, one of the, uh, the analogies to that is there is a potential overtreatment of bacteria in urine, okay? And so there are some medical people who every time they get near an older person will do a urine test for whatever reason. I don't understand the compulsion, but they love to do it. And even a person who has no symptoms, no, no issues, no complaints— it doesn't hurt when they pee. They don't have any weird urgency. No discharge. Just they're normal people just chill and live in their life. Run a urine test on them. If you see bacteria, you, you put them through a round of antibiotics. And, and it's medically inappropriate. Like it's not – you don't need to do that. You don't need – because they're not sick. They're just a human who happens to have some bacteria in your, in your urine. You don't have a UTI. You don't have a urinary tract infection. You have bacteria. You have Bacteria in your urine, but you're not sick. There's not, you don't need to do anything for you because you're okay. And I had an attending, uh, God bless him, who, who would just get livid if we just started throwing, like just pulling urine tests for no reason on people. Like, why are you, pull, do they have a urine complaint? Well, well no. The, what are you doing? Why are you messing with their urine? What are you doing? Why are you fishing for problems where there are no problems? This doesn't yeah. make sense. And, and so if, if I'm living in a cave, and I get a sniffle, I don't personally see a whole lot of reason for me to go do a COVID test, right? Like, I'm already vaccinated. I've done a bunch of stuff. I don't have any of the risk factors that make me a, a person for, for COVID. Uh, well, I fluctuate on the line of BMI 25, but, but I, don't, I don't need Paxlovid statistically, right? Um, but if I might go breathe on other people, it's like that second and third line effect. And I think that's the reason that medically it becomes advised. Um, but then, then you have problems where 
if you really just want that to happen, but then bosses aren't allowing their people to just home test or just, you know, test, test at the front gate or something like that, but they make them pay for a whole nother doctor's visit for me to put a Q-tip up their nose. To, to, to what end, right? Because if, if they're negative, why are they paying for my, why are they paying for my doctor's visit for a sniffle? All right. So, so le- legit, <laughs> legit scientist doctor question here, um, though. Uh, what, what's your, your, your take on either anecdotally um, being in the trenches at this point or what, what are uh, the data showing at this point as far as the current strains of COVID that we're seeing in circulation? Um, the, the potential level for severe outcomes versus the other, what is it? Four, five, six strains of common cold. Um, I do not know the numbers comparatively, but the last time I asked someone who was working in a local hospital, I was told that they just flat out don't have a ton of COVID filling their ICUs, and it's just not a thing right now. Like, fair to, fair to say that all of the common circulating strains of flu present a greater threat of complications or severe outcomes than the current circulating strains of COVID. I do not know those numbers. I don't. Um, what I what I what I can say is, given the numbers of people getting hospitalized, I don't think that the average person walking around the country right now, particularly if they've done vaccines, has what I would consider to be an outsized danger from this particular strain of COVID. Now I get it; everyone has like their own threshold of what that danger is, right? Um, like I'll climb up on a roof and I feel okay. Yes, is a roof dangerous? Sure. Um, I'll go running through the woods alone. Is that technically dangerous? Sure. I mean, a bobcat could jump out and try and get me or, or a murderer or something like that. But I do a number of things that have some risk, right? Um, you know, I fly in helicopters. That has a risk. Is that a dangerous thing to do? Sure. But I don't consider any of those like really outsized risks. For the average person, this particular strain of COVID does not appear to be um, this huge society ending fear. I don't think that's statistically accurate anymore. Um, the Delta, just, the Delta, the, the early, yeah. the first couple, if you were, you were over 60, you know, where we thought for a while you might've legitimately had a somewhere between five or 10% chance of dying for a while. Turns out some of those numbers were a little high. Right. But like when we were really thinking that for a little bit and we were thinking those were the numbers for a while, that's a big deal, right? Those numbers don't seem to be the case anymore. Yeah. I just what I, what I'm fishing for, and you're not going to commit to, is fair enough. It's just my my joke throughout this thing for for a long time. Very early on, I thought it was it was warranted and and wise to take you know relatively stringent precautions. You know, I'm talking February, March, April. We really didn't know what this thing was, yeah. and if we were if if the R nuts uh, or not, if the transmission numbers were what we were seeing, uh, and uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Mortality uh, rate. Give me the fancy word for it. Yeah, the mortality rate was as high as. I'm like, oh, we're talking about millions of people dead. Obviously, it turned. And but as it became obvious, it wasn't that. It, it, there was a subset of people that didn't want to loosen the reins. Um, and, and just my joke from that point on. Once we started to figure out, okay, you know, we're really getting a feel for what this thing is, what direction it's headed in. My joke's just been, uh, you know, I can't wait till we can get back to normal when life had no risk and no one ever died. Yeah. And I, but, and I feel like that's the standard for, for some people is like they, they use this as a catalyst for an excuse, um, you know, and it's tale as old as, you know, Thomas Jefferson and beyond, right? It's, it's giving up freedom for safety. It's just always a bad deal. Well, the, the, no, the, the, I guess the appeal and the danger of 
well, if we can just save one life, right? Um, when you say, well, if we could just save one life, isn't anything worth it? Uh, so a lot of people read reflexively like, well, of course. Um, and at some point you, you, you kind of go well, like, well, I mean, we're all going to go anyway, right? You know, at, at some point, no matter what we do, we're all gone. Um, and so how much are we willing to do to maybe delay one a little bit, right? Or, or maybe delay 10, like, uh, are we all going to really not go to work for a year to save a life? The whole country not go to work for a yeah. year. I, I, so at some point, like as much people don't want to admit it, there is a line where we have where where we as a society are starting to say, well, what's you know how much risk am I willing to take? And I think some of it comes down to we have a short attention span and a short patience as a society, right? Um, lockdown for a week, sure, most people are, are kind of down. I can't get my hair cut for a month or for six months. Uh, you know, um, oh, and now now my favorite pizza shop is closed because we told those poor jokers they can't make pizza. Um, and now that family's lost their whole business. Um, oh, you know what? Uh, I think one that got a lot of people was like, oh, we got to close schools because of COVID. Okay, cool. But then they don't, no one wants, like, who's going to watch your kids, right? At some point, you got to go to work, but you got a four-year-old, right? So, so, so now at some point you go... Hey man, I got to get back to work. Someone's got to watch this four-year-old. We got to get back to business, right? So, we all have these thresholds where we start to say, uh, "You know, man, I got the vaccine. Let's just move on," right? And I think it just took a while for everyone to get to their threshold, and everyone got real judgy with each other about where the, where the threshold was. You know, there were a lot of people who actively hated anyone who wanted anything to open, and there were a lot of people who actively hated anyone who just said, "Hey man, you are sneezing." in the middle of a Winn-Dixie in February when COVID came out, can you please just put a mask on? My freedoms! And, and you know, they want to get angry about sneezing on people in Winn-Dixie or something like that. So I, I think there wasn't a lot of tolerance all around for just everyone trying to figure it all out. It was a scary situation. And we, we did not have a lot of patience and love for each other. It's pretty nuts. Yeah, it's again, it, I mean, it was, I don't lay it all at his feet, but it was probably the worst or one of the worst possible times in human history for Donald Trump to be president of the United States of America. That's not a judgment on how he handled it. Uh, it was just, it's in, in, in my lifetime and in the histories I've studied, it was the most politically charged, if not one of, uh, or one of, if not the most politically charged periods. Uh, in the history of our country. And it just became that, that you could, and still, I, I was joking about this, you know, we had our, our primary here in Florida a few weeks ago and going to the polling place, I coming and going, I could tell which primary people we have closed primaries here. So you've got to be a Republican to vote in the Republican. You've got to be a Democrat to vote in the Democrat primary. Um, I could tell what primary somebody was there for based on whether or not they had a mask on. Now I know that math doesn't hold true in all parts of the country at all times, but here in Florida, uh, if you've got a mask on, you're either immunocompromised in some way or you love you some Joe Biden. And that just, you know, obviously that's painting with a broad brush, but it's just, it, it's a sad reality of it. And for something as important uh, as, hey, is is this, is or do the pros outweigh the cons of this protective measure? Um, you really need that. You really need to not, that to not be in the conversation. Oh, well, I don't know. Does the orange man like masks or hate masks? Because I need that information to determine if the the costs of wearing this mask, the uh, the loss of uh, body language for, for kids, you know, 
they learned so much visually, like there were prices to be paid for wearing the masks and it became really hard to say, okay, is the, is the juice worth the, the squeeze? Uh, even now you'd be hard pressed to get somebody to sit down. People who are legitimate scientists will sit down and give impassioned takes on the, the mass raw garbage and everybody should still be masking right now. Oh yeah. And, and smart people who are, who are with integrity saying what they firmly believe to be the best thing, right? I don't believe that everyone who disagrees is disingenuous or dishonest. Um, it's one of, one of the things to me that is the most concerning about the notion about going after medical licenses for not following the status quo. Um, I think there are certainly bad actors out there. And I think there are people who, um, even if they are well-intentioned, do really dangerous things sometime, right? Um, I think that it is risky to start shutting people up by saying, well, if you don't agree with what these 10 folks say, um, you now can't be a doctor anymore. That's a big jump, right? And and that certainly became a thing where medical boards were opening openly threatening if you're not following the established protocols, uh, we're gonna we're gonna look at taking your license away. Um, I don't know many cases where it actually happened, but the threat was openly made. Um, and I, I know of some cases locally where I'm at where where they are still trying to figure out if they're gonna take away someone's license for the way they were treating COVID. Well, let's. Uh, I, I really want to leave COVID behind. I just couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk to do an actual uh, doctor about it on the podcast. But uh, it's just whatever. We're we're all done with it. But uh, on that note, uh, a a peer of mine, a, a fellow podcaster. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know if you've heard of him or not. Joe Joe Rogan. He's uh, one of my peers here in the podcasting room. <laughs> you know, near He's, peer. Uh, <laughs> um was uh, famously at the center of a, of a COVID controversy over being treated with ivermectin. Yeah. Now it wasn't, uh, that's not the way it was reported. I do remember that. It wasn't reported as, it wasn't reported as he was treated, uh, you know, as an entire protocol of treatment that included uh, ivermectin. It wasn't, it wasn't put that way. It wasn't put, uh, you know, under the uh, close supervision and uh, advice of an entire medical team. Well, and I remember his, I, I actually saw, the, I mean, the, it was like a 30 second blurb where he mentioned, Hey guys, I got yeah. COVID and he listed through, he mentioned in his blurb, I think seven or eight different things that he was given as part yes. of a protocol with his medical team. Um, and then if I, was it, was, was it Gupta? But the way it got reported, was, was it Gupta he had the way on reported, from the from the news station that called it the yes, horse pill? Yes, and then he called him out to his yeah, face. From CNN. Yeah, the way it got reported was that Joe Rogan took took horse dewormer. Uh, now, yes, ivermectin is actually used as horse dewormer. Yeah, it's also it's also if it's not the most prescribed medication, it's one of the the most prescribed or given medications to humans. Like in the history of medicine. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't have it, is the, a, it is a Nobel Prize winning uh, medication. Yes. So the assertion, you know, it was a, it was a lie of omission. The assertion was that this thing only has a use in veterinary medicine, yeah. and that's that's absolutely false. Yeah. And so and that and that became widely vilified. And I'm certain that there are probably doctors who are going through what you're describing, where even now. There might be people trying to get their licenses pulled because they treated with ivermectin. The problem is there's some recent data that makes that real freaking problematic. Uh, yeah, it, and again, much like you said, um, you could have two good experts sit down and give very passionate 
completely unrecognizable to each other opinions on masks. Um, the ivermectin crowd is the same thing. Um, and I, I will say, so there's no confusion. Ivermectin certainly has its place, um, particularly in the, the parasitic world. I am a graduate of the, 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 the naval uh, tropical medicine course, you know, and, and something we learned in med school aside from that. It absolutely is a useful medicine, 100% proven, almost literally 100% consensus for parasite type things. There is still some pretty hard disagreement in the medical universe on, um, on using the ivermectin or not. And I have had a couple friends, and we have a joint one uh, who has since relocated from Florida, um, who shared with me some, some like data and stories of local physicians. And, and it seems to me like most of the, the groups that are, are pitching, hey, this ivermectin has worked real well, seem to be less funded and they're, they're sharing their own patient data sets. And that's what the, the vast majority of them tend to be. The, the trouble is that the folks who tend to pitch the, the, the end game and, you know, he who win, wins the victory gets to write the history, right? Um, the right. NIH is absolutely all about 100%. This is not a treatment for COVID right now. And there are certainly some, some data that just say, hey, this doesn't seem to be doing a whole lot. I have not seen any demonstrated harm in any of the stuff that I've read, but I've certainly read a number that say, hey, this doesn't do much, and a number that said, hey, this does pretty good stuff. And the trouble is they just literally disagree with each other. And I think when you have so much data on each side trying to go after someone's license for prescribing it, sure seems maybe problematic to me. Your thoughts? Yeah. Well, no, that I mean, that's, that's it. It's... Um... You know, that's the problem with uh, follow the science in the way that it became, not not the just the, the face value of that statement. Um, I'm the science, uh, everybody uh, getting entrenched. It's when the science isn't settled, it's real problematic with codifying one side of the argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because a lot of things that we used to think were, were absolutely rock solid, someone decided, you know what, let me just check this again. And we've, we've turned around a lot of things. We used to think everybody who started to get old should take an aspirin every single day because it will definitely help you know, reduce like heart attacks and strokes and stuff. Turns out not the case. Like literally while I was at residency, pretty landmark study, they, they realized, hey, you know what? If you don't have risk factors specifically for some of these things, aspirin isn't actually necessarily a benefit for you just because you're there. Uh, like, and that was a big shift because we used to just do that. Yeah. And everyone gets a baby aspirin. Right, like that used to be a thing, and there's a lot of stuff that over time we go, oh, well, we probably shouldn't do that. Uh, I had a, an older attending; I think he was probably in his late 60s when I was in residency, and I asked him one day, "How do you get to the point where you just remember all the things without having to go look everything up all the time?" Because I feel like I'm constantly having to go look up a new study on something to remember. And he said, "It's not, it's not remembering it the first time that's hard." He says. It's when you get older and they've changed what the real thing is four times. He said, now when I try to remember what to do about something, I have to remember which version is actually accurate now because they've changed it. So they've changed some of the stuff four times since I've been a doctor. And the stuff I used to do that was cutting edge good medicine when I was 20 nowadays would be malpractice because you just learn and stuff evolves. And I have to literally, I've, he goes, I've had to forget things three times just to be right. And it's weird how well, we're all of a sudden being like, well, you know what? If you don't agree with us on ivermectin right now, you should lose your license. And I say that as someone well, who you, doesn't you, write it. And, and I think going yeah. after someone's license is pretty crazy. 
you mentioned it, um, you know, in passing, but I'm a big fan of the show Scrubs. I think you are too. Love. I have been for, for a long time. And when um, a, a couple of the the stars got together and started a podcast, uh, you know, like a rewatch podcast, and I was Zach Braff uh, and Donald Faison were the, were the main characters and they were doing a podcast. They still are. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they brought up on there, they talked a lot about their, their medical advisor on the show who actually um, was the muse for JD, the main character. But uh, a lot of medical professionals actually say, even when they're doing the medical stuff on the show, uh, not just the hospital setting and the, and the dynamics between characters, that it is the most accurate of the, the medical hospital shows, you know, forget the, forget Grey's Anatomy, the Chicago hopes, no scrubs is it, which is funny because you know, it's, it's a comedy. It's just, I don't know if you'd call that, that I guess it's a sitcom. I guess it's like a, a typical three camera shoot, but anyways, um, but so there's actually an episode on there where, you know, if you haven't ever watched scrubs listeners, it's, it's following these brand new doctors fresh out of med school through, through their residencies and up through being attending and becoming quote unquote real doctors. And uh, so you do these rotations. Scott, correct me if any of this is wrong, but I think Scrubs is pretty accurate where you're learning from different doctors. A you're lot learning of medical about different stuff on there is dead on. Yeah. I mean, dead on. Yeah. So at one point, uh, and a whole episode is dedicated to uh, JD is on a rotation with this doctor who everybody loves. Even the people who don't get along with each other get along with this guy. And it's actually played by Dick Van Dyke. It's a great episode. And um, at one point, they're treating a patient together, and uh, I, I might call, get the procedure wrong, and it's so outdated, you might not know what it is. And that's not me, like, I know more about medicine than you do. I'm just, I think this was a real thing that they mentioned in the yeah. show, and I doubt it even gets taught now, but he's having JD do an NG cutdown. An NG cutdown. I, I wasn't certain. Whatever, so whatever. I, I don't know. Whatever it is. Well, this was like, uh, you know, the internal, the nerds, the blue on the show, they wore the blue, the internal medicine doctors just tr doing this treatment in a bed. Oh, yeah. But anyways, what it was an it was an outdated treatment. There was a much newer, a newer and much safer treatment. And JD, like, you know, nicks an artery or something on this guy. And it's, you know, it's like, oops, you know, and he didn't speak up and say, Hey, shouldn't we do this other newer thing? Um, and so the Dick Van Dyke character, he's taken the call, but JD outs him because like this dude's going around doing procedures that this was standard of care. And now it's, it's not safe. It's not what we do. Mm -hmm. And so it's a whole thing. If he stabs this guy in the back that everybody loves, but the storyline is this dude, cause ends up the chief of medicine is best friends with this guy. And, uh, but he has to call him out on it because ultimately the deal is this dude just got too old and tired to keep up. And that's what he admit, admits to. He's like, I can't be going to the conferences and the talks and all this stuff all the time anymore. It's too much, but it moves so fast. You have to, or you're, you're irrelevant and, and really ultimately dangerous, yeah. which is a crazy thing to think, Hey, this thing that was the standard, this thing that made you a, a lifesaver 10 years ago. Um, you know, you're Dr. Mingala now, if you're still doing the same things. Yeah. yeah. And there are, um, there are even moves to speed up and change a lot of how we get medicine out to people. There's something called FOMED free online access to medication, which is a movement that where a lot of physicians will even do like podcasts and they'll review, Hey, here's the new studies that are coming out. And they'll, do, and so instead of you having to subscribe to 72 journals, There'll be multiple, you know, upper end respected physicians in their fields who will review these journals and then they'll sit down and say, hey, guys, 
this month, here's the three practice changing journals that should, uh, you know, articles that should matter to you. And they'll explain to you what the applicability is. Do they think this is useful? Do they think it's not? Because when you look at the time for a study to happen, which, you know, it might take a year to do a study and then a year to get it all published. And then by the time people start to slowly incorporate it and it kind of makes its way into medical culture, um, a lot of medicine is adapting years behind the actual data, which can be years behind when yeah. it could be, right? So uh, the adaptation is still millions of times faster than it used to be. I didn't buy textbooks in med school, right? Um, you know, we the textbooks existed, but really I studied off the slides that my, that my professors made because if something new changed, they would just change it on their slide and it was changed for next semester. The textbooks were three yeah. years in printing. By the time something got printed, it was out of date. Or there was something in the actually read, You know, your heart is still where your I actually heart is. Read, yeah. I actually read an article just today. Um, uh, the listeners know I've, I've got a couple of toddlers here in the house. Um, and if it leads, it bleeds. And unfortunately, all the all the various news agencies and sites and uh, are more than willing to lead with, uh, hey, this thing almost call, killed this little kid. And uh, you're like, ah, I shouldn't read that. And you can't help but read it anyway. So the deal is, you know, like there's all this movement around like reusable straws mm -hmm. right now, carry your own straw, whatever. So this family had all these, you know, metal straws in the house that they were cleaning and reusing. And this like four-year-old kids using this metal straw and takes a diver off the deck and pushes this thing. Uh, you know, uh, sorry, listeners tune out if this is going to be too graphic for, I don't know, like 30 seconds, but you can imagine what happens with this yeah. straw and actually Nick's whatever artery that would have been in his neck leading up to his, his brain. That's not good. Right. It's so, um, EMS response, it's like a five minute response. Um, they're trying to staunch the bleeding. They're trying to figure out what's going on. They, they get this kid to the hospital. Um, happy ending kids, kids, fine. Um, you know, he's, he's got a minor lisp and there's some things he's overcoming now because there's portions of his brain being deprived of blood. But all that to say, um, how this ties in is there were treatment methods available at this hospital that are so new that, um, if this kid had been at another hospital that hadn't implemented and didn't have these tools available to them, wouldn't have survived. And, or if this had been just a few years ago, wouldn't have survived where they, from where this kid's artery was damaged, they couldn't repair it surgically. They went in through this kid's thigh, through his leg, uh, up through his, I, is it, I don't know if it's correct to say arterial system. I don't want to try and sound smarter than I am. That's that, you know, you're the smart one. They here. usually come uh, but basically system. Yeah went in through and, and did these, like we, what's funny is uh, this is, we used to do when I worked for water and sewer. Yes. Listeners, I've had a lot of jobs. You could do repairs like this to the sewer system where rather than digging up and replacing a pipe, you would run a liner down into this thing. And that's basically what they did with this kid is they went in with these things and repaired this artery, like watertight seal from the inside going up through his leg, which is freaking dope. Yeah. But impossible didn't exist a few years ago and still doesn't exist at a lot of different hospitals. So that's not to say so that, you know, the science moving is a good thing. We should learn more, but we know the earth's not flat anymore, but science had settled that. We know that we, uh, well, what's funny is leeches are a little bit back in vogue for certain things, I think, but not for the bloodletting that they like, we don't bloodlet like, like we learn, but it's, you know, there's, there is, a, we should follow the science, but we should be, weary of the hubris that says the science can't ever be wrong or the science isn't ever going to change because it does 
all the time and typically for the better. And so uh, the flip side of that is, okay, don't knock science when they go, you know what? We had that wrong. We learned something new and based on the new evidence presented to us, we're going to act accordingly. We're going to act differently. That's not, that's not flip-flopping. That's not, oh, the, you know, all the science is wrong. Questioning is built in. Yeah. We should we should constantly be questioning, and we should pivot when we learn new things. I think things. it's an issue with the the political influence on medical things because at least when a bunch of doctors are in the room and we're the only ones there, most of us most have a culture built into us where if we can't defend it, we abandon it and move on. Right, like. The, hey, oh, this was the thing I always thought was the thing. But if someone shows us something better, we got to go, oh, okay, cool. If that's what works better, let's move on, right? Like that that's supposed to be the culture that most of us have. And the trouble is yeah. that um, we don't have to get elected, right? And so when a medical advice becomes somewhat a political identity as well, it, it's hard for it to be as objectively abandonable, right? that's probably not the right word, right? Like it, it, it becomes a thing where someone feels an emotional need to defend it. And you should only defend it if it's true, not just because you said it a yeah. month ago, right? We're supposed to be yeah. able to abandon it at a moment's notice if we find something better. Um, you know, it's yeah. supposed to be Frogger, right? Whatever the, whatever the best log is, just hop on, right? But um, man, we, we have a, you throw some politics in it and it becomes this hill that's worth dying on for some reason. And I, I, it becomes problematic. Yeah, so it's not perfect. It, when it gets political, people don't want to don't want to be more objective about their stuff. They try to hold on to it longer than they should. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Well, it's um, well that I mean that's interesting. One, like, how or is it even possible for the rest of us schmucks out here who aren't doctors to tell the good studies from the bad, the good science from the bad, um. Well, yeah. Let's. I mean, let's leave, let's leave with that. Yeah, I think. Is, is there even hope? Um, how do I say this uh, politely? Um, for the amount of work most people are willing to put in, no. Yeah. Does that sound fair? Like that's. Yeah, it also sucks. Yeah, uh, because what most people really want is they want to. They want to, and I'm just going to be. Uh, I'm going to be a jerk here for a minute. They want to see a Facebook post with a ten word headline. They want to go, yeah, and hit send, and now they believe they know things, right? And they want to hit repeat, or or they want to say, well, this is this is crap. I don't believe this crap, and then argue, and then put it up and tell everyone they disagree with it. But rarely will anyone take the time to to look at a headline and go, hmm, I wonder what's going on with this, and then try and see if they could figure out where the source material was, and the news article might say, someone at Sanford says whatever, and if you look, the Sanford might be highlighted, and then it'll take you to another story where that, where that one might actually listen, listen like, oh, they mentioned it in the New England Journal of Medicine, and then you go and you look that up and try and find the thing. Very rarely will anyone actually get back to the actual source study. And yeah. anytime there's a big thing like that, there's almost always a source study somewhere in a journal, because that's where it starts from. Um, because most of the people who do these things won't put out news releases unless they've actually published a story or an, a, a, a research article. And if you go and read that, then you can start to figure out if you think it's any good or not. And then you have to look at things like, okay, 
Well, how many people did they look at? Uh, when they say it was better, was it like 0.1% better or did like three times as many people die if you do the other thing, right? And you kind of have to like read through that. And reading through a journal is, is harder than most people give it credit for. But if you just get to the source article and even just read the basic introduction, the basic method to have an idea what they do and then skip to the results, you're probably more knowledgeable now than 98% of the country. Yeah. Well, I, I think even just getting people to understand the difference between relative risk and total risk is a, is a game changer. Just that little factoid mm -hmm. of going, oh, if you eat this on a regular basis, your, your chances of developing colon cancer increase by 200%. Yeah. But if it increases okay. 200% to 0.0003%, Yes. Maybe I'm going to eat my cocoa puffs, right? Because they're tasty. <laughs> right, but but they don't but they don't want to present total risk because relative risk is sexier oh, yeah. and it's terrifying and you'll click on it and you might stop eating salami, which is delicious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like if you tell someone, "Hey, this particular treatment increases your COVID survival by eighty percent." Cool, but if Without it, one out of every 10,000 people in your specific demographic die. Um, maybe you don't care about it that much, right? Um, and, you know, if, you're, if your risks are really high, absolutely, you should, you should hop on that train, right? Uh, but you got to figure out where the risks matter to you for things. Um, you know, like I, I, I prescribe Tamiflu pretty regularly to people. Um, do you really? Uh, yeah, but I do it with a speech, right? Because I'm me and I'm annoying. So I always, I always explain to people, Tamiflu, statistically, by the study that I understand, and I've read it, um, doesn't change your odds of ending up in the hospital, which for most people who are otherwise healthy, you know, between 18 and 50, um, is almost none, right? If you're healthy, your odds right. of going to the hospital with the flu are pretty low. Um, but Tamiflu, statistically, might make your symptoms go away an average of about a day and a half earlier. So... I always tell people, think about how sick you feel and then think about how much that Tamiflu costs you when you go to pick it up. If your insurance is chipping, if you feel pretty horrible and your insurance is chipping in and it's five bucks copay, maybe Tamiflu makes sense, right? If you're paying the cash price $80 and you've got a mild sniffle, am I buying Tamiflu? No, right? So you, you just got to accurately kind of know what the potential benefit might be. Um, and so yeah. I tell people I'll prescribe it to you, but like, I don't want to over oversell the potential benefit of some of these things. And now there's another one that's even yeah. more expensive, uh, that just got uh, approved and it's sales pitches. It's like, Oh, it's like less days you take it than the Tamiflu, which is like five or three or something like that. I forget, but is, uh, is, is Tamiflu, cause my understanding has always been that it's, it's crap as far as it's intended purpose at best you're maybe you're going to feel better a day sooner which is it's kind of what yeah. you said day day yeah. it doesn't change survivability uh, but, or hospitalization as all as far as i understand tamiflu if i'm wrong yeah. feel free send me a note and i'll i'll say something publicly about is it is it reasonably effective as a prophylactic though like if i pop positive for the flu is it worth getting the rest of the family tamiflu prescriptions before they're showing positive for it um I, i've heard i've heard it's useful as a prophylactic i have not seen a whole lot of that um, I do know that um, regardless of the data and like the timeframes and all that sort of stuff, if you're older and higher risk and you end up in the hospital, they're giving to you anyway. Uh, but I, right. I, I have not looked into, hey, I got the flu, so everyone else in my household should start taking Tamiflu. I haven't looked into that. 
I don't prescribe it that way personally, but yeah. So, you know, having lived a longer portion of life outside of medicine before going into medicine than most doctors, uh, most shocking positive thing about medicine that you didn't realize before uh, you got into the medical profession and uh, most shocking awful thing? Um, Most shocking awful thing um, I really, really, really think is how bad insurance is. Um, at doing its stated goal. The stated goal for insurance is, hey, man, when you need something, we got you, right? Like, that's the stated goal. Um, I honestly feel on a regular basis, like, what ends up happening is, hey, man, when you need something, we're going to make it super hard on your doctor to order it for you to the point where your doctor thinks we're actively trying to stop you from getting the care you need. Um, and their sales pitch is, well, we're trying to make sure it's medically necessary. And my sales pitch is like, well, I'm a doctor. Um, it is. So just do it. Right. So one, one of the issues that I have on a routine basis is someone will come to me and I think they will need a test of some sort. And I will think it is reasonably urgent. That person doesn't want to go to the emergency department. I might be able to arrange it on an outpatient basis. Maybe I make some phone calls. I make it happen. Like, Hey, I got a place you can do this today. Head on down there right now. We'll get this squared away. Maybe you can avoid the emergency department. Thousands of dollars of bills and six hours waiting in a, in, a, in, a, in a waiting room, right? Then they get there, and then the insurance doesn't want to approve it. And now they want a prior authorization. And now they want me to phone call some, some office line, spend 45 minutes on hold waiting for someone to pick up who's not even a physician, who then wants to interview me about my decision-making, and then they want to me to wait for 10 minutes while they put someone on the phone who's a physician who hasn't read my notes. At this point, no physician has actually read my notes and said, hey, this doesn't make sense. We, we got some questions for this guy. No one's read anything of mine. They've just, de- they've just denied it or, or held it for prior authorization. And then usually I get on the phone and that physician asks me three or four questions, usually a conversation of less than two minutes. And they go, oh yeah, this sounds totally cool. We'll get you squared away. No, but I've never ever had one turned down. Um, and the, the trouble is it sets it up where if I just said, you know what, man, forget this. I, I can't arrange this on the outpatient. It's too hard. It's too much work. Go to the emergency department. Then you put someone in the emergency department. They're sitting there with all the really sick people waiting eight hours to get their stuff. They leave with a $15,000 bill. They never have to talk to the insurance about prior authorizations in the emergency department. They don't even have to have the conversation. You can roll in. They can order $8 million worth of stuff. It's just approved. It happens. But if I try and do the patient a solid, then they rake me over the coals. And so that's the part that I actively hate about um, medicine in general is the, the insurance stuff. Patients do not understand the horrible crap the insurance companies put us through to try and help them out. Because I absolutely could oh, say yeah. to every I, single one who I thought needed something urgent, too bad, go to the emergency department. It's above my pay grade. I, I could do that, right? Yeah. But if I try and be a, a good guy and help them out to avoid some hassle, um, they just make it miserable for me. Um, and you can't charge for the time on hold waiting and talking to those physicians, like the, the, the insurance people. That's just part of the deal. So that's the part I hate the most. Yeah. The part I like the most is I think that the, the vision of the evil – um, lazy, money-hungry doctor is is not nearly as prevalent as some people think it is. Um, there are a lot of really genuinely um, 
sweet, I'm talking life dedicated. They go home and they study the stuff. They, they take all their home, their work home with them emotionally to the point where it ruins their own families. And they love their patients uh, more than most people love their dogs, right? Like there, there are, there are, there are people who are just, they're good humans and they're, they're friggin' trying. Um, and I think that is far higher a percentage of doctors than most people give them credit for because we're not a very popular group of people. We're not, we're easy to hate. Um, because we have to say no. Sometimes we have to deliver bad news sometimes. And frankly, we're, we're generally well-paid to do it. And it, it's not a very popular yeah. place to be in. So uh, you get a magic wand, you can wave it and fix the healthcare system. What's your fix? Oh, dear. Um, <sighs> let, me give you, let me give you my fix and you, you can riff off it. Well, do, I, do I have to uh, figure I, out a way to make it actually be real economically or I can, I can suspend all like, laws of logic? No, you because you don't need to. There are there are logical fixes here. Like free market economy works, it does. Yeah, there, I mean, there are certainly um, costs, but yeah, okay. I think the the thing that to me that would make so much more of medicine be useful is if how do I say this? If the finances and the resources were there for all good advice to be followed, and people actually followed it everything would be different. At some point we're all still dying anyway, right? Right. But right, but the but the finances and the resources, the the only reason the finances and the resources aren't there is because ser- services uh products and services are unnecessarily overpriced because there's no free market pressures there. Oh. And in the areas of healthcare where there in the area of healthcare where there is free market pressures, the, the services work just like every other industry where the services have gotten better and the prices have gone down. When you look at the stuff that insurance won't cover, uh, like LASIK, it's the procedures have gotten better, they've gotten safer, they've gotten more effective, and they've gotten cheaper. And the doctors are still driving nice cars to big houses every day. And, and you look at some of the hospital lobbies and they are, um, they are five-star hotels. It's just, to, to me, like... Uh, I. My wife and I got in the van. Uh, I don't remember. I guess it was Sunday morning. I don't know. Van wouldn't crank. Mm-hmm. Battery. Crap the bed. It happens. I jumped it off a little jump pack. We went about our day. I, I called our normal mechanic. Uh, I got it in. I had him swap out. The, it was uh, Thankfully, it was uh, under warranty. Yeah. Don't know why it died. Just did. Uh, but um, you know what they didn't ask me for when I got to the shop? Your insurance. They didn't, they didn't ask me for my proof of automobile insurance. Because I didn't, I wasn't expecting, I honest to God have no idea who our carrier is right now because there's no reason to be loyal to them. You jump around to whoever gives you the best price for the coverage. Yep. Um, but uh, because I didn't expect them to pay for the battery. I don't, I don't whip out my insurance card when I'm at the gas station. I don't whip out my uh, car insurance card when it's time to get tires. For the normal maintenance and upkeep, it's on me. And you know what I do? I go, hey, those tires I want, who has those the cheapest? Yep. Hey, that battery I want, who has it the cheapest? Anybody have a coupon? Hey, I've, I've got to get the oil changed. I don't want to crawl under it myself. Uh, shop down the road has a good reputation, I'll, and their price is good. I'll go there. We don't do that with our medical services. No, but there, there is a, um, there's a cultural expectation that seems to be growing that um, nothing should cost anything. 
and um, people get angry if they're told to pay their $20 copay at a doctor's office. Um, people get angry if they get a hospital bill when they go to the hospital. Now, I, I understand some of the anger because some of those bills are stupid, right? You're like, oh, I, I went in, I sat there for six hours to have someone walk in, you did two blood tests, you looked in my ear, you wrote me an antibiotic, you charged me $6,000, right? Like, so I, I get it if, if, if someone's upset about it because it, the math doesn't seem to make sense. Um, so why does that cost six grand? Uh, well, the issue is it doesn't, right? And, and that's part of the problem is those numbers are somewhat imaginary to begin with. And part of the problem is because, particularly if you're dealing with hospitals, because they don't have to, they, they can't say no. You're, you're going to show up and you're going to get cared anyway. So some of the reason it's expensive is because they, they inflate the price to cover for the people who aren't going to pay anyway. So if you're one of the few people who do or you have insurance coverage, the price is already higher because you're covering for the people who don't and aren't going to pay. And then separate from that, because insurances do this very absurd thing sometimes where instead of saying, hey, this is a reasonable price for this service, this service is going to, we'll pay 200 bucks for. They just say, we're only going to give you 60% of what you want. And they often just work off a blank percentage. And they just say, well, we're going to give you 60% of what you want. It is what it is. And, and frankly, the, the hardest about this tends to be like, you know, the, the government wants the Medicare and stuff like that. Um, and so in response, systems go, oh, well, 60% of that, of what I want is what I get. But what I really need is this. So now I'm just going to charge, I'll just, I'll just double the price. And so what you end up with is like, um, you know, you picture like the mattress store that has a 400% off sale or something like that. It's like, well, well, clearly your, your number before you started was imaginary, right? Like, and that's kind of what a lot of healthcare does. So you get these imaginary things. Um, I remember when I was cash pay for a while as a patient, uh, one of the hospitals I went to, I had a big kind of thing happen. And, you know, there was thousands of dollars worth of bill there. I called them up. I was like, hey, I, I'm broke. I can't afford this. What are we going to do? And they were like, well, what was your insurance? And I said, well, I don't have insurance. And they go, oh, well, that's a 50% discount off the top. They were just literally making up a number. And if you just called and said, I don't have yeah. insurance, the number just dropped by 50%. Well, and but but and there, there's a lot there of people is, who didn't know to ask uh, who would who would try and pay back the whole thing. Yes. Well, and uh, but there is some. So, yes, some of that, the number is made up. Some of that is, though, that part of that six thousand dollar bill is the people that the hospital has to employ solely to deal with regulations and work with insurers. Oh, yeah. And if they weren't dealing with the insurance, if they could just like McDonald's go, this is what you got. This is what it cost. You knew it before you walked in. Here we go. You're just going to pay. I don't have to pay somebody to code that and submit it to insurance to go back and forth with them and try to get them paid. My labor costs go down if I don't have to deal with oh, yeah. that. No, there's a lot of built-in so, redundancy you know, and waste. I have to pay – like I don't sit on the phone for 45 minutes waiting for that prior insurance phone conversation, right? Um, and while they might be doing some other clicking while they're doing it, one of my nurses is sitting there with the phone line on, on, on speaker just you know with hold music waiting for 45 minutes where they can't leave their desk. Um, so like I'm paying someone to do that, right? Um, and it's problematic. It, it's not efficient in any way, shape, or form. And you, know, you think about like if you went to a subway to get a sandwich – and they had four people sitting in the back just processing credit card payments, you'd be like, well, this seems this seems like a 
not really a streamlined process, right? <laughs> like, you yeah. got two guys making sandwiches. You got four people in the back doing credit card payments. Like, what's going on? Like, wh- why are there so many people who yeah. aren't making sandwiches here? Like, aren't you a sandwich making place? But no, that's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah. If I if I need my spleen repaired, yeah. and I have, mm-hmm. I want I want my insurance company to to chime in. Okay, boys, you're you're in. Coach is putting you in. If I need my blood pressure checked. And, uh, you know, maybe a Z pack for something. Uh, I'm going to throw it out there just because I hate Z packs. You probably don't need a Z pack. I just want to say that. (laughs) So's your face. (laughs) Listen, uh, also, also a scrubs reference. Uh, but, uh, but my, but my point being that stuff I'm normally going to my, my PCP for, or even more and more people now, uh, going to an urgent care or even CVS is trying CVS wants to be your PCP now. Um, there's, they're they're making some interesting plays there. Um, I, I really don't, I really don't need my insurer involved there. And I I get that a lot of people, if you don't think it through your hesitation is, but I can't afford to pay for all of that out of pocket. You can't afford what it costs right now. Well, part of the problem is you don't know what it costs right now. You only know what your copay is, and that's part of why there's no market pressure there. But if you, remo- I'm telling you, if you removed the 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 cost of compliance from this process, really? those prices come down to where you can afford them when you need well, and them. And there is a there is a uh, growing movement towards direct primary care. Um, if you want another person who would be really interesting to talk to, Atlas MD over in Tulsa, Oklahoma, has done a number of uh, public relations things about that model. Um, and I think a prior friend of ours is doing this in Oviedo as well. Um, so yeah. the whole model there is like, hey, everything's crazy and efficient dealing with insurance. And then we got to call and argue like, no, how about you just give me call it, you know, I'm making up a number here. If you're a single adult, right? You give me 75 bucks a month and I'm just your doctor, right? And then you show up whenever you want. I don't have to spend three times as long documenting a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter. I'm going to write the medically relevant things in our notes. Because you're already paying me, you're not going to have to wait four weeks to see me because I don't have to pad the books with 8 million patients uh, trying to you know, support these 9,000 people in the back office. And I'm just available. And then the doctors tend to see less people per day. They tend to have more time for you when you want. They're, they're available faster when you just want to get in and out. And if you want to come in for an hour and talk about something, there's usually time to do it. And there's not, and I get it. Like, and now, now, it's a, now it's a cell phone payment, right? But for that cell phone payment, you really can go to your doctor that day as opposed to paying for an urgent care now where you're going to see some stranger who's never met you before, right? Uh, you can go to your doctor yeah. who actually stinking knows you. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a out of the box kind of thing, but there are a lot of folks in the primary care universe who are tired of being pushed by some hospital system to see 30 patients a day where you get 15 minutes with somebody. And they're like, no, no, no. How, how about I see 10 a day and my patients see me as long as they need to. And I'm available really rapidly whenever they need something and I can be responsive. And because I'm already paid, if they want to do a quick phone chat, I can do it. And I don't have to drag them into the office because the insurance won't pay for telemedicine. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's you can be more flexible with things. I can do text messages back and forth with my patients because I've already been paid and the bills are taken care of and my in, the insurance won't pay me to text you. Right. So it, there are uh, certainly models that are trying to adapt to the, to what you're talking about. 
Well, and that speaks some too to the other side of this coin with the way we deal with healthcare and with insurance in this country is that the majority of people get and uh, don't get ahead of me, people. This isn't an argument for universal healthcare because that's an, uh, you're going from bad to worse. Um, but the the way we we work right now, where most people that have health insurance. Uh, let's be honest, they're not getting it from some government marketplace. They're getting it through the empl- their employer for the vast majority of people that have it. And so, again, we only look at the pieces we see, right? How much did your last doctor's visit cost? Oh, I don't know, 30 bucks. No, that was your copay. How much did it cost? You don't know because you didn't pay the bill. No one knows. Well, yeah. you, also don't, you also don't know how much your health insurance costs. You go, oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm paying it's so expensive now. I'm paying, you know, whatever, 200 bucks oh, yeah. a, a paycheck. If you haven't had to price no, out a Cobra your... lately, you don't have any stinking idea because it's probably yeah, 1500 no, bucks that... a month for your family. Yes. And so you go, oh, you know, I work so hard doing this job for my employer and they're only paying me whatever, $35,000 a year. Most employees don't understand that they cost their employer far more than whatever that paycheck is, far more than whatever that $35,000 is. One, they're paying half your income tax. You don't realize that, but look at your income tax bill. Understand that they're paying the same amount you are towards income tax for you. If you were self-employed, you'd be paying all of that yourself. Kiss 30% goodbye of your income for self-employment. They're they're paying um, workman's comp insurance for you, and depending on the risk involved in your job can be very very expensive. Um, so they're paying that. You don't ever see that expense. And then, yeah, they're paying more towards your health insurance. There's exceptions to all of these, but on in most occasions, they're paying significantly more towards your health insurance than the portion they're passing along to you. All of which means they have less resources available to pay you to put that money in your pocket. Yeah. In, in a lot of cases, you know, if, Kale, you go to hire an employee and you want to pay that employee their check is going to say 40 grand by the end of the year, right? You know, if you are the the average mid to large size uh, company where you're paying decent insurance, you've got a little bit of retirement in there, you know, you're doing all the payroll stuff appropriately, they're a W-2 employee. Um, that $40,000 employee might cost you 60 grand, right? And the most employees don't understand the cost to the employer, and they go, "This just cheapskate's only going to give me forty. I'm worth way more than that." Well, of course you are. You're worth the sixty. That's and that's what it costs to have you show up. You know, the yeah. system eats a lot of it before it gets to you. But that it's not always your employer's fault. Your employer's still paying the bill, um, and it's hard, right? Because you know we only see the thing we see. I actually saw uh, somebody uh, again, and, and oh, you and I have been friends for for a while. Somebody we knew in the wayback machine. Um, I can't remember what new government law policy, whatever it was, was being passed that was just gonna cost a fortune in compliance on the labor mm-hmm. side. And their take on that, they they actually they're like, think of all the jobs this will create. I'm like. No, dummy. <laughs> That's not how this works. I mean, yes, but those fun, like. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like, well, if if every subway had to have five people in the back processing credit cards, uh, you're right. It would be a lot of jobs created. That's it's an accurate statement, uh, but there's some context. So one of the things that really makes me happy is Jeremy Clarkson, the guy who did like the uh, the, the old car shows on the BBC. Um, yes. He has yeah. a whole show he's about a, him a, using, having a farm a, now. And yeah. he is every curmudgeonly old man hating all regulations. 
And just imagine yeah, no, he's all ad regulations in Britain, right? So it's a lot. It's like, well, down to literally down to four decimal places, how many hectares of soybean do you have? And there's a code for that. And how many hectares of, you know, radishes do you have? And all the documentation that you have to do. He's allowed to have a farm store, but you can only sell produce that was actually grown on farms within that county. If you cross the county line, you can't sell it anymore because now it has to be at a, at a grocer and not at a farm shop. Like there's all these little rules. Um, and you just watch this guy go, how does anyone do anything if, if every time I do? And then he realizes that they're literally taking satellite pictures of his farm. Like that's one of the things the government takes satellite to, to like kind of verify your percentage of soybeans claimed. Right. Because they're, they're literally kind of spacing it. Out. And, and it's just crazy. Some of the overhead that stuff costs like things, things cost more than people think they do. Um, and it's hard. It's hard to, to do all that stuff. And I think that's part of the part of the, the trouble economically is when you make the barrier to entry high with a bunch of regulation and demand uh, for stuff just to get started. It, it's hard for the little person to get to get to get to do something right. You know, if you need yeah. a if you need a seventeen million dollar truck to do to start a tow truck business, as opposed to just leasing one for fifteen hundred bucks a month, it, you know, there aren't going to be many tow truck companies. What's your your estimation here? What um, a detrimental might be too strong a word for you to uh, actually offer up an answer. Uh, I'm still going to ask it that way. Uh, what do you feel is more detrimental or handicaps our healthcare system more, uh, the private health insurance side or Medicare, Medicaid? Oh dear. Um, I think the amount of like regulatory burden contrasted with the payment amounts when you take, uh, in consideration as well, the, the sheer numbers and force involved, I, I think Medicare has some issues. It, it's hard. It, it is harder to navigate Medicare than it is to navigate most of the insurance stuff. Um, the, the number of paperwork things they make you do, they want different codes for stuff. It, it's just, it's a lot of overhead stuff to the point where most physician yeah. groups have, have whole departments of people just sitting in the back doing compliance. So why like why do it? Uh, it just seems like because the, if you're a like hospital not system, you have to see the patients. So in order to get paid, you have to do the paperwork right. Otherwise, you're going to see the patients not get paid. Who says you? I, I'm not suggesting that you know they let people you know shoot people out of the the waiting room to die in the gutter. But who says you have to treat them? Mtala. Which is Mtala is the 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 rule that requires that. Everybody who shows up to an emergency department, regardless of, of capacity to pay, is is obligated to get a um, medical evaluation and stabilization. Um, what that ends up being, because they're already there, and most people are not going to say, well, you're stable for today. Get out and throw you out in the parking lot. Like, that seems um, not like a viable option, right? That's, that's kind of crazy. Um, what usually happens is you, you get brought in and they do whatever you need. Um, but uh, yeah, and for folks who who literally have nothing, that's that's often the only medical care they have because your local doctor's office can say, "Hey man, swipe a credit card, or you can't even come in." The urgent care yeah. can say, "Swipe a credit card, or you can't come in." 
the, um, you know, the surgeon's office down the street can say, swipe a credit card or you can't come in. The ED has got to take you. And um, it doesn't matter whether or not you have legitimate medical problems like, oh, man, I'm having a heart attack. Come on and we'll take care of you. Or, um, you know what? Um, my toe hurts. You have to be evaluated. They have to bring you in and do an evaluation. And then depending on their threshold and comfort level with, with risking an EMTALA violation, which can be bajillions of dollars, then they, they then they get to decide how much treatment they're, they're willing to do for free, right? Um, they might say, well, you know, this is not an emergency. You got, you got to go home now. Or they might say, well, it's not an emergency, but you're already here. Let's just go ahead and do this. Um, but yeah. So it, it, it's, um, it's a lot because it, if it doesn't exist, a lot of people literally get no care, which is, which is a problem, right? Um, but because it exists, there are a lot of people who manipulate the system because it's, you know, it's there. There is a, a literal just show up and you get care thing. And it's inefficient because if those people were able to get care in their primary care office, um, a lot of them, were they to utilize those primary care offices appropriately, would never be in the emergency department. And it's a lot cheaper to go to your normal doctor than it is to go to the ED. Whether or not you pay, it's cheaper to the system, to the universe in general, if you go to your primary care doctor. You look like your There's not an easy fix there. Yeah, no, I know. And, and, you know, I, I know, um, some of the stuff I know, some of it, I, I, I don't, I, you know, I didn't know what the regulations were that drove the, you know, I, I honest God, I always thought it was, was your stupid Hippocratic oath, um, that, that drove that. If you come in, we'll treat oh, you. No. Um, no. but you know, it's just, there, there's not and and this is where I, I don't know. There's just not, there's not an easy solve for it. But the conservative libertarian in me still doesn't like it, and it, my my gut is that um, you know where where the system as it is not soaking up so much resource, uh, both from from businesses and from individuals, that there would be enough resource to go around charitably to to cover that care. But it's one of those where it's like you don't you know prove it. Yep. It, it, it's rough. And when you, one of the things that you look at when you look at the – there are multiple graphs out there that show the, the growth of administrative positions relative to physicians, right? Number of admins versus the number of people actually making sandwiches, so to speak. Um, and it's, it's gotten really different over the last 20 years. Like the, the ratio of administrators to actual physicians walking around in a hospital is – I mean it's really, really different than it used to be. Um, well, and you know, that, that leads to yet another, uh, you know, I don't know how you want to describe it, societal, political, whatever issue that drives a lot of having to do that is just, uh, you know, I don't know if it's the same where you live now. Um, you spend a lot of time living here in, in central Florida where I'm at now. And there, there is no discernible difference in billboards for our state lotto here and billboards put up by, um, attorneys here in central Florida. They, they look the same. Our society is so litigious. Um, it is the litigation lotto. It is, uh, let me see if I can sue and get you a big check. Um, part of why the insurance is so expensive is because they cut checks rather than going to court. Um, they often but yeah. doctors get sued. 
doctors get sued, the hospital gets sued, everybody freaking gets sued, and their insurers settle, and because they settle and cut those big checks, it's still cheaper than going to court. But if you do the court thing a few times, if you'd start to push back, um, you know, if you made it harder to get the money, and occasionally they didn't get the money, uh, maybe it would disincentivize it. But again, it drives up the prices all the way mm -hmm. around. The the insurance that those checks the insurers are cutting, whether that's malpractice for the doctors or or whatever it is, um, you know that money's got to come from somewhere, and it's you, the consumer, and uh, you know the you know you got to pay doctors more. Right? Doctors are overpaid. You know, part of why they're paid so much. Um, I'm not asking for your own numbers. That's like asking somebody how much money they make. But like as a percentage, what does the average doctor spend on malpractice insurance of their income? Um, so I actually going to tell a rough story about that. So um, family medicine, it, it might literally be five or 10%. Right. It, it can be that depending on. And, and, and I feel like that's a pretty low risk area of medicine. It is, is, it is that, and is, so here's, that here's the, the thing I wanted to mention. So, um, it not only changes the price of care, it changes the availability. So it used to be the norm for family medicine physicians to have hospital time that go in and catch babies so that hospitals could have more hospitals could deliver babies locally to where people lived. That used to be normal. Um, there are now, particularly in rural America, where I'm now Midwest, right? There are multiple, 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 multiple huge swaths of counties, counties wide. Oh, in this six county area, not one person delivering babies. You, you want to, you want to, you want to deliver a baby in a hospital and not just like randomly in an ambulance on the way to a, a hospital in a bigger town. Um, you, you better, you better go get a, get a hotel up there the, your last week of pregnancy expected, right? Because you just, you live three hours from a hospital that delivers babies, right? Th those are things that happen. So part of the reason that happens is malpractice wise, and I'm going to make up some numbers here, but let's say 10 grand for me to have malpractice insurance. Okay. As a family medicine physician doing normal clinic-y things, right? There's a certain amount of risk there, but it's generally considered relatively low. Um, and again, somewhat making up numbers here. If I tell them I want privileges and cover and malpractice coverage to deliver babies, uh, my insurance is now 35. Good and Lord. so if I, if I'm going to, and again, slightly making up numbers here, but if, if I go, if I'm in a low, low volume place and I'm saying, you know what, eight or 10 babies a year, I'd love to be able to be there and take care of these people in this local town, all the low risk pregnancy stuff, whatever. I'm not doing C-sections, but I'll, you know, I can, I can go in and cover that or whenever something randomly happens at the hospital, if it's a, a standard vaginal delivery, I can do it. Um, well, if my insurance difference to offer that coverage, that care is now going to be more than I could even possibly bill for that service, let alone the hassle involved with it uh, and all the extra call I would have to take to be able to do that. Cause that's 24 seven. People don't schedule, you know, catch my baby. Right. Um, yeah. Well, now I'm not going to do it. And, and now, now you're going to drive to the big city because, and I'm not even a bad person if I say that, I just can't, I just, I'm not going to do it. And then because that becomes the thing for so long, the, the red, the training programs start saying, well, Hey, um, I mean, no one really does this. So we don't need to do as much of this in our training anymore. And then you slowly start to not only not have the physicians do it a whole lot when they leave residency, now less of them are trained to do it at all. 
And so, so even if you were to change the system, now you get a whole generation of doctors who are kind of barely capable of doing that on a regular basis if they chose to, unless they specifically spent a bunch of time at it and had a place that was, that did a lot of it. Right. Um, and I went to a residency that had a lot of it. I caught like, I mean, I, I probably did 60 or 70 deliveries. Right. Um, and, and I was not near the highest in my program, but there's a lot of programs where they, you know, they'll do 20 or 30, you know, they do the bare minimum and then, and the minimum numbers are changing. Um, it's not even required to do continuity delivers anymore where like you follow them for their whole pregnancy and then deliver that baby. That used to be a requirement. It's not even a requirement anymore. Um, the, because the requirements are changing because they're reflecting that no one's doing it. So now you aren't getting very many family medicine doctors who are actually delivering babies. So you lose a massive specialty offering a service that almost literally every woman needs, no matter where she lives. And now she needs an expensive OBGYN surgeon who frankly don't tend to live out in the middle of nowhere. Well, and so like the, you would want here to blame the insurance company. Oh, they charge so much for that. The doctors can't even, can't even do it, but they got to cover their nut, right? Like if they're, if they're not bringing in more than they're paying out in liability cases, then it's not worth them doing it. So the, the real issue there, they've got a math problem, right? They've got a math problem. Yeah. So the, the real issue is the, the lack of any kind of tort reform in this country, the lack of any kind of protection, um, you know, legally for a doctor who's acting in good faith. You don't want protections for like, you know, there's a, there's a difference between like gross and willful neg negligence. And this doctor was doing his or her best and, and made an honest mistake. And sometimes that happens because we're working with humans and you can, without the insurance there, they're, they're, they're monetarily their life's over. You can't do it. Mm -hmm. No, but that's a lot of things in our lives are more expensive now because there's no tort reform. There's no loser pays. You know what I want? I, I don't even necessarily want like caps on cases where a jury or a, or a judge can only award so much. I want this version of loser pays. I want losing attorney pays. I want if uh, somebody like, oh, I'll pick a name at random. John Morgan uh, here in Florida in the southeast. He, t he takes on a case and sues somebody and ties up their lawyers and ties up their money and he loses. I want him to eat the cost, not the plaintiff. Yeah. He's, That's what he's I want. still allowed to do like, Hey, you don't pay me. You just, uh, you know, I'll get a percentage of your winnings if I go, but he's no longer putting up just his attorney's time versus like a, a chance of a big payout. He's, he's putting up, I have to pay the other guy's attorneys if I lose. <laughs> It would, yeah. it would certainly cut yeah. down the number of cases that go to court. Immediately. Yeah. Immediately, because there's no more, eh, I'll throw it to, I'll throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. There, there is a little too what, much, what, I'll throw what, it at the wall and see if it sticks. And the problem is that you certainly want to cut that off, right? But then every now and then you see some craziness, and you're like, how did someone get a medical license acting like that? That person not only should yeah. lose a court case, they should be in jail. That's insanity. Um but, uh, you know, usually well, and that's, whenever that's I see I a case like that's, that, it seems to me like there's been complaints for a couple of years about that person. Like it's rarely someone's first time that they really make the news for something dramatic. It seems to be a pattern yeah. and it just, I don't know. Um, there's certainly some, some things that the physician universe could do to clean up their own house.
So let's let's pivot a little bit. I don't know. It's all just pissing me off. Um, so uh, doctor wasn't good enough for you. You needed uh, to be a, a captain in the military too. Yeah, yeah. How this go it's down? Fun. I I enjoy it. And and I made the joke yeah. that the the medical side of the army is different than everybody else. I think that that is a very accurate statement. Um, um, I am still a soldier. I'm still an officer. I'm still held held to standards. I absolutely can still be sent to places where um, deaths happen and all that that sort of stuff. I don't want to misrepresent anything and pretend that I am living out the reality, the risk, and the bravery of you know your average enlisted soldier, you know, serving an infantry unit or anything like that. Uh, my job is to try and take care of them. But luckily, I get to hang out in the aviation side of things, and so I have even within the medical universe somewhat of a more kind of kind of uh, dream existence uh, because. Frankly, they don't, they don't tend to park helicopters on the front line, right? So, um, you know, if I'm going around doing things, I certainly endanger because helicopters are very susceptible to gravity and, you know, they have their own risks involved. Uh, but I get to do fun things and I really enjoy it. We, uh, my, my unit is the transport for the civilian helicopter rescue. So if you break yourself out in the mountains somewhere and you need a helicopter to come get you, it's a National Guard helicopter flying civilian fire department rescuers to lower them down on a hoist and pick you up. Um, and so I get to go out there with them and, and no one needs me there, right? Like, but I, I get to go out because I am the person who certifies them to be medically safe for flight. I get to go out with them and see what they do and see some of the, the really, really interesting things that these, uh, these awesome firefighters, these great pilots. I mean, you got pilots who could basically just almost half park off the side of a cliff um, and lower a guy down in between trees, 50 feet off, you know, hundred feet off a rope, um, you know, 10 feet from a cliff. It's really amazing how skilled some of these people are. And if you've ever sat and tried to fly a helicopter simulator, and I have, um, it's really easy to murder everyone immediately. Um, <laughs> and, and I killed us yeah. all the second I got control of the, the helicopter simulator, um, to the point where I actually think I impressed the instructor who was with us because I killed us fast. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, uh, if, if listeners, if you haven't ever looked into what it actually takes to fly a helicopter, it's, it's crazy. You know, the, what's, what's the word for that? It's not ambidextrous, but it's, you know, like when you can independently do different things with all of your appendages at the same time, it like it's, it's beyond like you're doing all the multitasking yeah. is off the charts. Yeah, you're doing different things with each hand and your feet all simultaneously, or it all falls it all falls apart. So you're like you're controlling elevation with one hand, direction with another, rotation with your feet, yeah. uh, and then just trying not to run into you know things. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a pretty crazy deal. If you can't play the drums, you probably can't. Like if if, if you physically if you lack the dexterity to play drums, you probably can't fly a helicopter. Which um, I think that's is safe consistent with me that standard. Cause I can't play the drums for anything. Yeah. Now I, I would say like when you first told some of us that you were getting certified as a, is it flight surgeon? Is that the correct, that terminology? Is the correct terminology? Which is not as cool as it sounds. Even though you're, you're not a surgeon. No. no, we, we all immediately we're all like, dude, that's dope. So you're going to do like life flight stuff or whatever. And it's not dope at all. It's like, <laughs> no, the guys who do the cool stuff, you're asking those guys occasionally to turn their head and cough. You're that guy. I, I've made a couple people cough. Yeah, that, that's fair. Um, yeah, it, it's really <laughs> the, 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 the medical doctor who says pilots are good to go. Yeah. So you get a lot of yeah. really interesting training in flight physiology and, you know, some of the accident reporting stuff and, you know, a lot of the interesting science behind the safety equipment that they use. So on a, on a nerd level, very interesting, but, but I am not like some, some high speed, um, 
you know, special ops surgeon, like doing forward surgical stuff that no, 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 no. I'm, I'm the, I'm the medical doctor for the pilots. That's pretty much what I, well, pilots, the, the UAV pilots, the, the folks who fly like the actual unmanned vehicles and like the flight medics and crew chiefs, all, all them, anyone who's flight rated. No, but what I was getting at though is, you know, some guys there or, or gals, their path to medicine is through the military. Yeah. Like that's how they'll they'll become doctors. They'll let them pick up that bill. But that wasn't that wasn't your path. Like you came about it to a roundabout way. So talk about how you ended up in the guard. Uh, so I was in school and I was like, hey, I had always wanted to do military stuff, um, and it was always something I was interested in. Uh, my wife was pretty not interested in me doing that because. Uh, Active was the only thing I'd really considered at the time back in the day. Um, she was like, I don't have any interest in that at all. And then I got in school and we realized like, hey, man, money's tight, right? Like school's expensive. I can't work now because I'm literally just at school studying a million hours a day. Um, maybe we could talk to the military and see if there's a way they could chip in for some some money and expenses and stuff like that. And just the, the details seemed to work out. And I managed to convince my wife to let me sign up. So um, I got in. And then I immediately, as is typical for me, just started politely harassing people to let me do stuff. And I convinced some people to let me uh, do the, the flight search. I find the, like, just, um, oh, what's the, what's the, the audacity? Just, just the complete lack of self-control and just saying, hey, I want to do this cool thing. And just, like, keep throwing your name up at stuff. And just multiple times I've had people laugh at me and say no when I've asked for dumb stuff. And then eventually someone just says yes. Sometimes just to watch the look on your face when they say yes. But I, I mean, I think there's just yeah. something to be said for just like throwing out stupid requests and just seeing if every now and then yeah. you can trick someone into, into letting you have it. And too often people are just too afraid to ask the question. Yeah. Just throw it out there, man. Like now, the worst I, that's going to happen is they're going to laugh at you, which has happened multiple times to me. Um, yeah. But I still got to do cool stuff. Now, so we – We've acknowledged that while you're that you're under no illusions of, of being, you know, like a like a real soldier. Like we we joke about it tongue in cheek, but like we we know what's up here, right? Yeah, so I'm very open about that. But 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 you but you are a legitimate military officer, and you are held to the standards that go along with yeah. that, mm -hmm. up to and including um, expected behaviors. Were you to say? Uh, cross paths with the superior officer mm -hmm. outdoors, say like on the grounds of a base. Yeah. Um, Are you referencing you the ever, time I didn't salute a colonel because I was looking at my phone? Yes. <laughs> I want to hear this story so bad for the listeners because it's one of oh my favorites. Oh my gosh. So, um, so when I first joined, uh, my orientation was, was very lax. Um, I, I, I swore in in civilian clothes in, uh, in, at the recruiter's office. The recruiter pulled out a post-it note. She wrote jacket, hat, shirt, socks, boots, pants, handed it to me and said, hey, you need to go down to the military, the military uniform store off base and just tell them you need your uniform. And that was what I and here's the phone and then wrote the phone number of the guy I was going to start reporting to on a post-it note. That was the that was my orientation. And then for the first, I don't know, probably like four or five, six months, I just showed up. I met this one guy who was a captain at the time. He was a nice dude, PA, loved him. He's an awesome guy, still a buddy of mine today. And he just, he would pick us up. We'd get in a van. We'd drive to across the state. We'd do some physicals where, and because I wasn't a real doctor yet, I was a med student, I wasn't allowed to do anything. I'd largely just do blood pressure and 
vision and stuff like that. The PA had to do all the sign off. I couldn't sign anything off. And then we'd go back and he'd say, okay, you guys are good to go. And we'd go home. Right. So like we weren't doing formation. We weren't doing a lot of like military protocol things. And everywhere we went, when we showed up, everyone was already inside. So we would get out of the van. We'd walk in to, a, to an armory. There'd be no one outside. We'd walk right in. We would do our things and it'd be a bunch of enlisted soldiers, usually in like PT uniforms. So no one's saluting inside. And then we would go home. Never did like the military protocol thing. And so I went by one of the, one of the headquarters one day and I had to do something. And, the, and I was just walking out. I was just looking, looking at my phone, which again, no one had told me at that point, you're not supposed to be walking around looking at your phone. You're, if you're walking, you're supposed to have military bearing and look up and know what's going on. Because it's, it, you know, a bad officer, right? I didn't know better. And I, I wasn't paying attention and I kind of had awareness that there was like a, someone walking by me, but I just literally, literally never even occurred to me to look up to see who it was, which is again, stupid new officer, lieutenant thing. And I heard, I heard like the boots stop right as I passed them. And I was like, that's weird. Why did the boot? And I, I heard, excuse me, lieutenant. And at that point I realized like they had the tone of like, you don't know how bad you just screwed up, you stupid idiot, right? <laughs> and they weren't yelling, but they didn't have to. You know, you could just hear disdain in a voice. And I turned around, and this uh, Fulberg colonel was staring at me. And so a Fulberg colonel is an 06. They are the highest rank, um, like, below a general. So, like, they're the, they're the next thing to a general. And I, as a, as a lieutenant, yeah. just literally ignored her walking past Um and I turned around. I said, "Oh, oh, I, I'm so, 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 sorry, Colonel." And um, and then I like almost dropped my phone trying to like salute whatever. And she still looked angry at me, but it changed to just like just disappointment, <laughs> like, which almost hurt more. I really, I really would have liked it if she just kept yelling at me or started yelling at me. But she just looked yeah. like I was a lost cause and was just like you need to tighten up Lieutenant and just shook her head at me like a disappointed mom and just walked away. And I was just like, Oh, and then I immediately called my captain. I was like, Hey man, um, if you get a phone call <laughs> about, about a stupid Lieutenant, here's what just happened. And he yelled at me. <laughs> he was like, you dummy. What are you doing? Oh, that story brings me so much joy other than I try, if I think about it too hard, I get sad because I want like video. I want to have witnessed it. Oh, but it, alas. I'm talking it, one of the dumber moments of my entire life. Yeah. Felt really stupid. Yeah. Fantastic. So I haven't done that anymore. Well, dude, this. <laughs> no, thank God for it. So we learned from our mistakes. Yeah, yeah. Well, dude, it's been, uh, it's overdue. It's been a long time coming. Yeah. Appreciate you coming on. Appreciate you doing this. Uh, 100% have to do it again. Absolutely. I would love to. We can hit the medical. Well, uh, you know, we will, you can be our own little Dr. Oz. You can, we can hit on the medical stuff occasionally but there's all kinds of non-medical stuff we wanted to get to today didn't get to and would love to hear from you on that type of stuff regularly yeah, so man, just let me know when. appreciate it and yeah, and, and uh, i will yeah. actually arrange for a jocko go before the next one if you give me more than four hours notice you I t listen you you shoot me your address and you will have jocko go for the next one that i guarantee <laughs> so i will text that's, you that's I how promise. we do here at the Salesman Podcast. So we'll see. We've been, uh, hopefully the listeners won't know the difference other than me saying it right now, but we were test driving new tech for this recording. Um, I'm, I'm using a new recording server or test driving a new recording service 
uh, called Riverside that uh, if it works well and if I stick with it is going to enable some really cool things should improve um, our audio quality here on the podcast should give us um, some new cool options uh, for some promotional content and uh, may give us the uh, the opportunity for say like our patreon supporters to listen in on some recordings live as they happen which is is the most fun way to to experience them if you get that chance so uh, I, I think it went went well so listeners you'll have to let us know if you're like oh no uh, normally this sounds pretty good or uh, normally it sounds crap but now it sounds crappier whatever <laughs> let us uh, let us know how it ends up uh, on your end. Luckily, uh, our our wonder audio engineer Art tends to make us sound good, uh, no matter what. But uh, Doctor Banting, appreciate you, man, for sure. Got to do it again in the uh, the not too distant future. Appreciate you, listeners. Appreciate you as always for uh, stopping by and sitting in on this with us. Hopefully, you laughed a little, learned some things. Uh, maybe you can identify some bad science, or maybe you're all going to go take ivermectin. I have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, if you do, that's on you. Uh, he's a doctor. I'm not. None of this was medical advice either way. Just a couple of guys talking about fun things. So, But listeners, we love you. We appreciate you. Do me a favor. Stop by the website, solid7podcast.com, solid7podcast.com. There you will find links to all of the various podcast apps uh, where you can listen to the latest episodes. You can uh, buy me a Jacko Go. You can become a Patreon supporter. You can follow the social media. But most importantly, if you would all take a moment to follow, subscribe, like, rate, review, all that stuff, the podcast, that's the things the algorithm likes to see. So all that's a big help. And uh, until next time, listeners, love you. We're out. The Solid 7 Podcast is a proud affiliate of GORUCK. GORUCK designs and builds the toughest gear on the planet. Tested and proven at thousands of GORUCK events held all over the world and led by current and former Special Forces combat veterans. The GORUCK brand stands for building better Americans, the Special Forces way of life, and a life-or-death approach to building the world's toughest gear. Visit Solid7Podcast.com and click on the GORUCK link to learn more about their gear and events. And a portion of every purchase and every event registration you make will go to support us here at the Solid7Podcast. Mm-hmm.